All right, church. Hey, before we before we step into the word, I just want to thank God for something special in my life in that today marks the 35th anniversary that I've been the pastor here at Idlewild Bible Church. Today was our, the first Sunday 35 years ago and and I just I applaud the Lord with you. I was 27 years old, as green as the day was, long and and uh, Lord, you, you've just been so gracious and kind. And 35 years later, here we are. Just seems like a blink. And uh, have gray hair and heart issues. <laughs> Such a deal. But the kindness of the Lord in my life. And I want to give him credit before we go any farther with that. So, church family, today we kick off a brand new study series. For me, a new study series is always exciting. It it gets my adrenaline pumping, although maybe that's not a great thought in this moment for my heart. But but I do hope that as we step into this brand new study series, you will share my excitement because we are stepping into an amazing book of the New Testament, the book of 1 Peter. And if you would take your Bible, please, and join me there in the book of 1 Peter. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand and we'll be glad to Share a copy of God's Word that that, uh, would make this time more profitable for you. If you don't know your Bible yet, maybe well enough to know where 1 Peter is, just go all the way to the end and then kind of just work your way back. Uh, It's almost at the end of your Bible. You'll find the book of 1 Peter. Also, if you wouldn't mind, retrieve this little note page. looks like this in your bulletin. Retrieve that out of your bulletin as well, if you would. So why 1 Peter, Pastor Tim? Well... The Bible says that uh, in 2 Timothy 3.16 that that all of God's word has been authored by him. It's profitable for us. So it really wouldn't matter where I invited us to turn. We could expect God to use the word in our lives in a great way. But 1 Peter, as a Bible book, is especially timely and, and particularly helpful because it is so applicable to the life that we are living in an increasingly secular culture that is growing more and more hostile to the claims of Jesus and the truth of God's word. Hostile towards the Bible, hostile towards the church, hostile towards those who would name Jesus' name and call him Lord and Savior. Our culture is moving in increasingly hostile directions in this way. And we've had a fresh reminder of that just recently For the past several weeks, we have been urging you to call or email our state lawmakers, urging them to vote no on an assembly bill that is before the lawmakers of our state, Assembly Bill 2943, a bill that, if passed, would be a direct assault on uh, our constitutionally protected freedom of speech as people of faith. The bill would make it illegal to proclaim that transforming power of Jesus or to use the Bible to help those who are desiring help in their struggle with same-sex attraction or or gender confusion. AB 2943, as you may well know, a few weeks ago passed the Senate 25 to 11, two to one in favor of making this a law in our state. I am happy to tell you that on Friday at the very last minute, that law, that bill was withdrawn from the floor uh, by the assembly and did not come to vote. And I believe that was a direct result of the prayers and actions 
of the Christians across not only our state, but even beyond. And that's really great news. But what it does remind us of, church family, is that, that many of these kinds of issues are coming into the forefront. And increasingly, our faith is being challenged by our culture. And our love for Jesus and, and our desire to hold the values that are found in God's word we are on a collision course with a culture that does not share those kinds of convictions. And I know you agree with me on that. You know that is true. One writer has, that I read put it this way. He said, the more irrelevant or, or threatening that Christianity is considered to be by the culture, the more relevant the book of First Peter becomes. And that's really true. This little five-chapter letter was written to the marginalized church, to the dismissed church, the disregarded church, the persecuted church, even the hated church. It was written for the church in hostile lands, in hostile times. It was written for the church in exile. The title of our series is Exiles. And it comes from the opening verse of this letter, verse 1. It's, it address, it's addressed to those who are elect exiles. Brother, sister, lover of the Lord Jesus today, you might not have thought that you are an exile as you drove to IBC. You maybe didn't think, oh, I'm an exile in my culture. But you are. Maybe a lot more than you realize. I have a secret hope that this little book might end up in the running for one of your favorite books of the Bible Martin Luther, if you remember his name from the Sola series that we did back in the fall, he called 1 Peter one of the noblest books in the New Testament. And he said it right alongside of the book of Romans and the gospel of John as, as a book to be esteemed, to be valued because of its beauty and its power. And that's, that's good company to be in that company. And that's the, that's the book of 1 Peter. Now, as we always try to do when we step into a brand new book, a brand new series, we try to set the stage for the drama that is going to occupy our attention for the next several weeks. And you can see that there on your note page, setting the stage. Because this is a letter, it will be helpful for us as we begin to know who wrote the letter, uh, who it was written to, and what the reason was that would move the sender to send the letter in the first place. Now, just imagine if you came upon a letter blowing in the wind. There was no envelope, no address, none of that. Just a single page that was crumpled up. It was dirt smudged and water stained. And you began to read this letter. Now, you could understand some things just by the reading of the letter. But if you knew who wrote that letter and you knew who it was written to, and you knew why the letter had been written, well, that would really help you in understanding it. The letter would make much more sense as you read it. Well, we certainly aren't left wondering who wrote this particular letter. The opening sentence says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, this is the Peter of the Gospels, church family. This is one of the 12 disciples, easily the most prominent and best known of the 12 disciples. In fact, the only person in the Gospels for whom we have more information than Peter is Jesus himself. 
We know a lot about Peter. Peter was a married man. He came from a fishing family that made its life and its living on Lake Galilee. His name was originally Simon. Jesus chooses him to be one of the inner circle of his followers. And and he says, follow me, Simon, and I will make you a what? I'll make you a fisher of men. And, of course, Peter does follow Jesus. Jesus changes his name from Simon to Peter in Matthew chapter 16. And that word Peter means rock or stone. And it seems at times like a rather ironic name for Jesus to give to Peter because he really was many times not all that rock solid. There are many times when he wasn't all that stable. In fact, he sometimes is called the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth because he was, he was just so impulsive and he would say things and, and do things that would get him in trouble sticking his foot in his mouth uh, in many ways, many times. For instance... Do you remember the occasion when Jesus tells his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, he must die on a cross and, and do that in order to redeem sinners? And, and Peter says to Jesus, pulls him aside and says, no, Jesus, it just isn't going to happen that way. Not on my watch. Do you remember that? And then Jesus has to rebuke Peter with the most strong and powerful rebuke ever, ever spoken in the scriptures towards another person. But that's what Peter deserved in that moment. He'd stuck his foot in his mouth. You remember that scene out of Matthew chapter 17 where Jesus uh, unveils his heavenly glory for Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. And, And it's there in the midst of that incredible moment that God himself from heaven has to interrupt the scene and say to Peter, stop talking. Just listen. Well, that's our Peter impulsive it is peter who boasts on the eve of jesus death saying that all the other disciples might abandon jesus but he would never do that remember that yeah but within a few hours of this proud boast peter denies that he even knows jesus not once but three times and yet it is this peter who actually is the only one who steps out of a boat on a storm-tossed lake and walks on water. Nobody else would dare to do that, but that was Peter. It is Peter alone who tries to defend Jesus on the night when that mob comes in the garden and tries to arrest Jesus. And it is Peter who takes out a sword and he handles it like a fisherman rather than a soldier, if you remember. And, uh, and he would have died right then and there if, if Jesus hadn't reeled him in and protected him, he would have been killed. But that was Peter. It is Peter who, upon being restored by Jesus in John 21, following his triple denial, is told by Jesus three times, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And that was Jesus' way of saying, Peter, feed my church, build up my church, serve my church. It is Peter who, on the day the church is born, in Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit-inspired, preaches the gospel message so clearly, so powerfully, that 3,000 people give their life to Jesus right there on the spot. This is our Peter, the writer of this letter. According to historical tradition, Peter was forced to 
watch his wife be crucified for her faith along a road outside of Rome. It is said that as she died, he encouraged her with the words, remember the Lord Jesus. And then as he himself was crucified for loving Jesus, he asked his executioners if he could be hung upside down, unworthy, he said, to die in the way his Savior had died for him. And so he was, according to tradition. This is our Peter, the one who writes this letter. In the end, he really does live up to the name that Jesus gave him, the Rock. Leader of the apostles, he becomes the leader of the early church. He's the first to take the gospel to the non-Jewish world in Acts chapter 10. He fully embraces Jesus' charge to feed the sheep. And this most certainly, this charge is what moves him, motivates him to take up his pen and parchment and write this letter, as well as the shorter letter of Second Peter. He must feed the sheep. For the incredibly prominent part that Peter plays in the unfolding story of the gospel and biblical Christianity, Peter writes very little of our New Testament compared to, say, a John or a a Paul or, or a Luke. Just eight chapters of Holy Scripture, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. But maybe that actually makes these two books all the more special as it is all that we have in writing from the disciple who maybe knew Jesus in a way that nobody else knew him. So it's Peter who writes, And as he sits down and writes this letter, we then ask the question, well, to whom does he write and why? Well, verse 1 again, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, this is the kind of verse that you could easily kind of read past out of a desire to get to the really good stuff in the book. And yet verse 1 is actually the key to understanding the entire letter. And I'm I'm not exaggerating when I say that. But let me give you a date, church family, an infamous date in history. July the 19th, 64 A.D. This was the day that Rome, the greatest city in the known world, the capital of the Roman Empire, burned while its certifiably insane emperor named Nero watched. You perhaps know a little bit about this. Even if you don't know much about ancient history, you probably know about this moment in history. Fire broke out simultaneously in several parts of the city, clearly the work of arsonists. And the great city was consumed in a holocaust of flames. And who better than we to appreciate what that actually means? having had our town threatened to be consumed by flames just a few weeks ago. The fire rages out of control for three days. It burns for nine, leaving most of Rome's one million residents homeless and bereft of all of their personal property. Well, the people immediately believed that their emperor, Nero, had ordered the city to be set on fire. They knew Nero was obsessed with building building ever greater, more grand structures to his own glory, his own legacy, his own name. The city, choked with hundreds of thousands of wooden tenement buildings, 
was a hindrance to his ambition. Before he could build the realm of his dreams, he had to destroy the one that existed. Historians tell of Nero taking a front row seat in the Tower of Macenus and watching the raging inferno consume the city, even calling it as it burned a lovely sight to see. Well, that was Nero. The people's anger towards Nero was justified. It was deep, and it was going to turn out badly for Nero. He realizes that he needs to redirect the people's rage, and he has to find a scapegoat to blame for the fire. So what does he do? Well, he points a finger at a small but growing religious group, calling themselves Christians, calling themselves Christians, followers of Jesus. He spreads the word as fast as he can that his investigation has uncovered that they are, in fact, the ones who started the fire. His choice is perfect because these Christians were already viewed by the culture with suspicion and even with contempt. Christians rejected emperor worship, and so that didn't sit well with the people. The Christians also rejected all of the other gods of the Roman pantheon. That did not sit well with the culture. They followed a Jesus whom they claimed was God in the flesh and that he was the only God and that he'd risen from the dead. They thought that was absurd. They didn't care for the Christians. They engaged, they heard, the, the, the culture heard that the Christians engaged in weird practices, something called communion where they would eat and drink the blood of their risen leader. Well, that didn't sit well with the culture. And on top of that, a part, uh, the, part of the, the Christian's message was that if people didn't repent of sin and turn to Jesus in saving faith, there was coming a terrible judgment by God upon the unbelieving world, a day when the world would dissolve in flames. And so for Nero, man, the Christians were tailor-made to blame for this devastating fire. As a result of Nero's accusing of the Christians, intense, brutal, deadly persecution breaks out against them. Anti-Christian feelings that had been simmering under the surface of the culture, maybe for quite some time, now they burst forth in, in, in violent hatred and wrath. Tacitus, the, the Roman historian, goes into gruesome detail telling of the many ways the Christians were taken and, and tortured and killed. Suffice it to say that after July of 64 AD in Rome, you did not take Jesus' name on your lips unless you were prepared to pay the ultimate price. Not surprisingly, this persecution spreads throughout the entire Roman Empire. It spreads to far-reaching places like Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, a region some 900 miles to the east of Italy and Rome, known then as Asia Minor. Today, it's the country of Turkey. And you see this there on the, the map that you have on your, on your little insert page. This region is where the message of Jesus and the power of the true gospel really began to get traction and, and grow in the early days of the church. The Apostle Paul was actively working in this region of the world. And the church was growing. By 64 AD, 
Man, there were many Christians. There were many churches made up of Jews and Gentiles scattered or dispersed throughout this territory. Peter calls them exiles of dispersion. There's no definite article in the original Greek text, so this is a non-technical term. Peter is writing to Christians who are scattered, spread out, dispersed all over Asia Minor. So sometime in the second half of 64 AD, perhaps in 65, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this circular letter that he anticipates is going to be copied and then shared, and it will make its way throughout the entire region of Asia Minor. And he writes it to Christians whom he calls exiles. Or maybe your version says strangers or foreigners or, or aliens. Even that word is used in some versions. The term, uh, all, those, all those different terms, they translate one Greek word that in the English Standard Version is the word exiles. Now, why would Peter call these Christians exiles? Why would he choose that word? They have lived in these lands for generations, so they're not, they're not political exiles. They're, they're not geographical transplants from some other place. They're not, they're not from another territory. What kind of exiles are these, church? What kind do you think they are? Yes, yes, they are spiritual exiles. Very good. He's, he's writing to Christians who, whose beliefs, whose devotion, whose practices, whose convictions, whose choices, whose lifestyle causes those in their culture whom they live with and, and among to say of them, you don't belong here. You're not really part of us. You don't think like we think. You don't believe what we believe. You're different. You don't belong. Peter's writing to believers in Jesus who are spiritual aliens, who are strangers, foreigners spiritually. They are spiritual exiles in a hostile-to-Jesus culture. He's writing in a time when Christians are suffering severe persecution, not for anything that they have wrongly done, but simply because of who they are and what they believe. Now, if we had time for you to just read through this entire letter in one sitting here, you would easily begin to to realize how dialed in Peter is to the current climate and situation of those that he is writing to. In fact, let's just take a moment. I'm going to highlight some verses out of the letter and let you sense the, the awareness that Peter has of the climate and situation. For example, in chapter 1, verse 6, Peter says that these whom he's writing to have been grieved by various trials. Well, that's a very nice way to say you are being persecuted for who you are. In chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as what, church? As evildoers, that's how the culture saw them, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Chapter 2, verse 19. 
For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering how? Unjustly. It's not just suffering. It's unjust in this culture. Chapter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Why does Peter have to say that? Because they're experiencing evil and they're being reviled for their faith in Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 16. Have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Why do they have to do that? Because they're suffering for Jesus' sake. Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Now there's an interesting thought. The fiery trial that you, when it, when it comes upon you, to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You follow Jesus, you better expect the trial. Chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And how about chapter 5, verse 9. Resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering you are being experienced by you is also being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. It's happening everywhere like it's happening to you. Jesus told his followers in John chapter 15, the night before he was crucified, verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, if the world, the culture hates you, know that it hated me first. It hated me before you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. What is Jesus saying? If you follow me, you're going to be a what? An exile. You're going to be a spiritual exile. This letter of 1 Peter and 2 Peter as well were written by him to persecuted exiles, spiritual exiles to help these Christians stand strong, endure the suffering, and remain faithful to Jesus no matter what. That's why they're written. In fact, Peter actually tells us that very plainly. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, here's what he says. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I am stirring you up. Peter says, I'm writing you, dear brothers and sisters, scattered throughout Asia Minor out of a desire to help strengthen and encourage you and show you how to live for Jesus in the midst of, a, of an increasingly hostile culture so that you don't lose heart, so that you don't waver in your faith or become bitter. I am, I'm writing to urge you to hold on to hope and to hold on to your Savior and always be looking up in anticipation of his soon return. I'm longing for you to live faithfully and obediently for Jesus when the prevailing culture looks at you like you're from another planet, like you're a spiritual alien. I'm longing for you to hold on. Exiles exiles because that's in fact what you are you're an exile church family this is why first peter is going to be so helpful so timely for us the culture that we are living in is increasingly looking at us and thinking you don't belong 
You really don't belong here. You, you, you really aren't part of us. You hold on to different beliefs. You hold on to, to, to different values. You're just different. You really don't belong. And sooner or later, and I think all of you would be inclined to say sooner, the sentiment in our culture is going to change from today's scoffing, dismissing, irritation, and tolerance of Christians to what we would call focused persecution. And AB 2943 is just a a little bit of a taste of where things are going. Peter wrote to first century exiles, but truly, he was also writing to 21st century exiles. He's writing to us. And thus the title for the series, as you see it there on your note page, Exiles Living for Jesus in a World That Doesn't. And that's where we're headed over the next many weeks together. Now, Since this is Peter's motivation for penning his letter to strengthen, encourage, build up, and call spiritual exiles to even greater faith, I would not want you to miss the fact that he can't even get through the opening sentence of his letter without attempting to do that very thing. Right from the start, he wants to inject into his suffering readers a massive shot of encouragement. Well, how is Peter going to do that? Well, church family, he does it with a single word. If you'll flip your note page over, he reminds these Christians at the very, very beginning that they are what kind of exiles? Elect exiles. Yes, elect exiles. In other words, they have been called out. They have been selected. They've been handpicked. They've been chosen All of these are words, maybe in your version, that translate this particular word. They are elect spiritual exiles. And their election is by the actions of nothing less than the Trinity itself. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son, the Lord Jesus. Each is named. Check this out. To those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's Peter's way of encouraging his readers in the very first sentence of his letters, of his letter. And man, the vast expense of of divine truth that Peter lays out in just this this one verse. It's like trying to to comprehend the immensity of the universe as you stand outside on a dark night here in Idlewild and you look up at the stars and you're supposed to try to understand the universe as you look up and see that. It's, It's just beyond all comprehension. And this verse lands in that same place. Not only does this verse plumb the the depths of our salvation. It is also one of the clearest declarations to be found anywhere in Scripture concerning the Trinity, that there is one God who exists in three persons. Inescapable truth. Peter is telling these suffering Christians that the Trinity has assembled and chosen them. Chosen them to be their eternal possession. 
They are elect exiles. This persecution, their loss, their, their pain, it's not unseen, it's not unknown, it's not overlooked, it's not been forgotten. One of the most miserable thoughts when, when we're in a suffering place is to think that we've been abandoned, to think that we've been forsaken, left alone, that we're on our own. And Peter says, suffering Christian, you need to know here at the very, very beginning that the Trinity has chosen you. It has elected you to be its eternal possession. You need to know that. How could that not have been an incredibly comforting and reassuring thought to these these believers who are at odds with their culture and they're suffering for their faith? How can that not be an encouragement to you or to me today, fellow Christian, that you, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you are an elect exile. You've been chosen by the Trinity. (laughs) So to those who are elect exiles, Peter says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now that's the first thing that Peter says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now what he says in that little statement is huge. It's way bigger than we can really unpack here. With these words, the lid is being lifted off of an age-old debate concerning our salvation. So do we choose God, or does God choose us? Right? That's the debate. Yes! But that's, that's the controversy. That's the question. Election or choice, right? If you've been a Christian for very long, you have come up against this issue, this, this struggle. Are we going to resolve this question this morning? Hmm, probably not. But somehow, these two seemingly irreconcilable truths are harmonized and reconciled in the mind of God. Controversial theological debate aside, Peter, as an encouragement, right from the beginning to these beat-up, buffeted, and suffering Christians, says, don't forget who you are. You are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Peter is saying to them that God sovereignly, deliberately, purposefully, and because it is solely what he wanted to do, he chose before the creation of the world every single person who will be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. He did that. He did it before anyone ever existed. And that's what Peter is actually saying here. In eternity past, God foreknows every individual that will ever exist. Before they exist, he chooses them. He elects them. Every sinner that is saved through faith in Jesus, he has willed it to be so. Before there was even a world or a single person. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Say, wow, that's a lot to take in. That's way bigger than I thought it was. But 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 Paul, let's just take a look at what Paul says because he affirms this truth. Ephesians chapter one, verses four and five. Here's what Paul writes. For he, that is God, did what? He chose. He chose us in him, that is in Jesus, when, church? Before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined. He determined beforehand, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. He just wanted to do it this way. 
In him, verse 11, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Wow. Wow. We could spend weeks on this stuff. No sinner is chosen by God on the basis of anything that the sinner does, but solely on the basis of what God himself wants to do, coming from a place of mercy and love and grace. That's how God ensures that he gets all the glory for our salvation. It's all of him. It's not of us. God did not look forward down the corridor of time from his place in eternity past and see all of the sinners who would choose Jesus and then in his foreknowledge say, well, I guess they chose Jesus, so I'll elect them based on what they do. No, no, this word foreknowledge means that the father doesn't react to what he sees. He just declares, I choose you and you and I choose you. I choose you. And this is what Peter is saying. How precious this truth would have been to Christians facing intense persecution for loving Jesus. God chose me. Can you say that today? Can you say that today? It's not unusual and it seems like everything is kind of walled up against us and and trouble is at every turn to think that somehow we must have fallen out of favor with God And that's why we're experiencing these difficult times. We must have done something bad, and now God is not for us like he used to be when things were easier. That's where our heads go, oftentimes, in the midst of suffering or persecution or difficulty. And Satan loves this kind of thinking, church, loves to encourage doubts and fears in a Christian's mind. God has no care for you. he's he's abandoned you. All of these things that are happening to you, it's because you've gotten on his bad side, and now you're going to pay. He loves to cultivate that kind of thinking. And Peter counters, no way, Christian. You are the elect, the chosen, according to the foreknowledge of the Father himself. You couldn't be more safe or secure or, or known or loved than you are. Never forget that. And then he says, and don't forget that you are in the sanctification of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, that word sanctification, it's kind of a big word, stuffy word, maybe a little bit intimidating. It's a big word, but just know that it's a word that simply means to be set apart, to be set apart. You've been set apart by the working of God's spirit. And again, what an encouragement to hear this. We know from other places in our Bibles that it is the Holy Spirit who takes the spiritually lifeless heart of a sinner And he brings that heart back to life. It's called regeneration. It's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit to take a sinner that God has chosen and set them apart, preparing them to receive the truth about Jesus that results in eternal life. He plows the hardened ground of the heart and he makes it ready to receive the gospel seed. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Only the Holy Spirit can sanctify. The Apostle Paul said it this way. 2 Thessalonians. 2.13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God did what? He chose you as the first fruits, as as the beginning of the spiritual harvest. God chose you to be saved. How? How did he do that? Through sanctification by the Spirit 
and belief in the truth. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, the truth of Jesus' cross and his resurrection would be like a seed that falls on concrete and never germinates, never takes root. But the Spirit does the work. He breaks up the heart's hard soil so that it receives the gospel. And check this out, Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, the fear of judgment, but you received the spirit of what, church? Sonship. Sonship. The spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, or Daddy, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are what? God's children. Members of his household. His family by the activity of the Spirit of God using the truth of the gospel. Sanctified, set apart, children of God. What an encouragement. The reason these Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor have been set apart and marked out by their culture for slander and suffering and persecution is because they were first set apart by the Holy Spirit as those who were chosen by God. The reason they're being persecuted is because they've been set apart. They can endure a lot knowing that this was true. They didn't fit here in this world because they've been refitted for another world. Amen? They didn't fit in this world because they've been refitted for another world. And that is true of you. That is true of me. Through faith in Jesus. Elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Church family, with these last two truths, we see that God's election does exactly what it's supposed to do. It produces in us obedience to Jesus. Peter's way of saying belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. We become obedient to the truth concerning who Jesus is, and what he has done for us on the cross. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus, church? He's God. He's God in the flesh. God in a human body. What did he do? Well, he did, the, he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Being sinners, he could, we could never ourselves remove the guilt of our sin from our lives. So what does God do? Well, he puts on flesh. And he comes into our world, a hostile world, and he dies our death on a cross. And he pays the debt we could never pay. His blood poured out, his blood sprinkled at the cross, atones for the sin in your life and my life. That's what God said he would do. That's what he did. Our election would require the death of nothing less than God himself. If there was ever an exile who was far from home, it was Jesus, wasn't it? He left the safety of heaven. He willingly entered into a world that could not wait to unleash its hatred upon him. But Jesus said he would overcome the world. He dies on the cross. He rises from the dead as proof that sin's debt has been paid and death has been defeated. Those that God elects and the Spirit sets apart, they believe this. They are obedient to the gospel. Are you one of these? Are you one of these? 
Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, the heart that the Holy Spirit has softened, that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? You're going to be saved. That's not a suggestion. That's not a wish. That's a, that, that's a declaration. For with the heart one believes and, or obeys and is justified, pronounced not guilty. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Every single one of the elect believes this. If you believe this this morning, my friend, you are the elect, the chosen of God. Does that not blow you away? That blows me away. How about 1 John 4, 9 and 10? This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Sprinkled with his blood, as Peter said it. Atoned for with blood, forgiven all of our sin by the shedding of the blood of holy God. The father foreknew The Spirit sanctified, the Son died, and rose again. All of this is from God, all of this is through God, and all of this is for God's glory. Amen? All of these truths assembled in this one opening sentence. What a comfort for a Christian living in Pontus, whose family has disinherited her and held a funeral for her treating her as though she were dead because she loves Jesus. What a comfort to her to know, I've been chosen by God himself. How encouraging for a businessman in Cappadocia whose entire community refuses to buy or sell from him because he's one of those Jesus followers. How comforting for him. How encouraging. How reassuring for a Christian wife in Bithynia whose husband has a dozen deities and an altar in the corner of the house and mocks her constantly for believing in a dead guy. How encouraging for her to know she's the elect of God. Fellow Christian, such is our encouragement separated though we might be from Asia Minor by 2,000 years, we are no less elect spiritual exiles living in a culture right now that is growing increasingly intolerant of those who love Jesus. Are you ready? Are you ready to face that? That's what Peter's all about. First Peter is all about that. What comfort A father who chose me, a spirit who set me apart, a son who died for me. Little wonder Peter would add, may grace, God's undeserved favor and peace, God's calm presence be multiplied to you. Amen and amen. We're on our way, church, in the book of 1 Peter. If you have some time this week, Maybe spend a little time reading the book, becoming better acquainted with it, and we'll see what God does with it in our lives. Let's pray together. Exiles living for Jesus in a world that doesn't. 
Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious book and for our opportunity that you have given us to study it together. Thank you for the encouragement that has come to us even this morning. Maybe in this room right now, there is there are some who just needed to hear this, that they are chosen by you. Life is really tough, but they're the elect of God. They belong to you. May that be all of our encouragement today. May it be a, a cause and a source of, of praise today and in this week to come as we reflect upon this, this glorious first two verses of this book. We know the enemy is real. We know he will be around to, to try to bring confusion and disrupt our series. We ask you to protect us, Lord. Allow us to, to work through this together and grow thereby, becoming more effective for you in a culture that, that's growing increasingly hostile. We love you, Lord, but only because you loved us first. And we say thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen, amen and amen. Let's stand together and sing.